The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 3, The Missouri Compromise. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Okay, so welcome to the American History Podcast. This is episode three of our crash course, the Missouri Compromise. I hope you're enjoying this so far. Um, today we're going to delve into an important aspect of American political history during the antebellum period, of course, um, the Missouri Compromise. If you're enjoying the show, please check out the website, www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, at American Hiscast. All right. In 1819, the Missouri Territory applied for entrance to the United States. Representative James Talmadge, a Jeffersonian Republican from New York, submitted an amendment to the request for statehood. Now, that amendment restricted slavery, which drew objections from Southerners who argued the legality of slavery had been settled by the Constitution. Talmadge obviously opposed slavery and was hoping to bring about the extinction of that institution. Now, the amendment read in part, quote, and provided that the further introduction of slavery or involuntary servitude be prohibited, except for the punishment of crimes, whereof the party shall have been fully convicted, and that all children born within the said state, after the admission thereof into the Union, shall be free at the age of 25 years. End quote. Now, just a bit of background on Talmadge. He might have been a Jeffersonian Republican, but he was an independent-minded person, and he had a history of being anti-slavery. In 1818, he had objected to the admission of Illinois on the ground that the state constitution did not go far enough in arguing that the Northwest Ordinance's prohibition against slavery would be maintained. The year before that, he helped efforts to speed up the gradual emancipation of the men and women who remained in bondage in his own state. And it would be correct to say that Talmadge had no idea that his proposal would set off a firestorm, as there were only 10,000 slaves in Missouri at this point, the same number of slaves that existed in New York, and the proposal Talmadge put forward for their emancipation was very similar to what had been adopted in New York. And so sides began to be drawn almost immediately. On um, the side of the amendment were northern members of Congress, many of whom invoked morality, religion, economics, um, even the Declaration of Independence itself. Now, part of their strategy was to remind Southerners that their own revered statesmen, including Thomas Jefferson, had hoped to find a way out of perpetuating this so-called peculiar institution. The South, however, presented a virtually solid and unified opposition to the proposal. Even Thomas Jefferson himself joined in the debate on the side of the South. Thomas W. Cobb of Georgia said, You have kindled a fire which all of the waters and the ocean cannot put out, which seas of blood can only extinguish. While Tomatch himself said, If a dissolution of the Union must take place, let it be so. 
if civil war, which gentlemen so much threaten, now come, I can only say, let it come. Even Jefferson himself is quoted as saying, this momentous question like a fireball in the night awakened and filled me with terror. So the amendment passed the House of Representatives, calling for no more slaves being brought into Missouri and the gradual emancipation of children born to slave parents who were already in that territory. As I mentioned earlier, Southerners viewed the amendment as a threat to the sectional balance. Southerners were concerned um, by the fast increase in northern population and the economy, as well as the political balance of the House of Representatives. Now, the Senate was still evenly divided, 11-11, slave and free. Um, Southerners were, of course, afraid for the future of slavery, upon which their economy depended. Now, remember, Missouri was the first state entirely west of the Mississippi that was being created out of the former Louisiana Territory to attempt to enter the Union. Southerners were worried this could set a precedent for the rest of the region as other states from that region began entering the United States. If Congress could abolish slavery in Missouri, then it might try and abolish slavery in southern states. Now, the Senate refused to pass the amendment, um, but a national crisis was looming before the country. And with this debate revealed, to the surprise of many, was that quietly, over the previous three decades or so, the South had become far more committed to slavery and dependent upon it than it had been during the Revolutionary Era. Indeed, the opening of the Southwest, and we're talking about Alabama and Mississippi, to cotton production created a new demand for slave labor, which in turn caused the value of slaves themselves to skyrocket. Now, an example of, uh, is a field hand in his prime. Such a slave in 1814 would have cost approximately $800. However, by early 1819, just five short years later, the same field worker would cost $1,100. Now, prices would fall during hard economic times, such as the Depression of 1819, um, but the prices of slavery of slaves in general continued to increase. As historian Daniel Walker Howe notes in his huge volume, uh, What Hath God Wrought? The slaveholders of the Chesapeake region, formerly dependent upon slaves to grow tobacco, were now dependent upon selling off the region's increase in human beings. Slave children represented to these slave owners capital gain. Thus, a Virginia planter told his son-in-law in 1820 that a woman who bears a child every two years is more valuable to him than the best man on the farm. So while Missouri itself was not a cotton-growing region, the idea that slavery might come to an end um, struck horror into the people in states such as South Carolina and Virginia, which had become dependent upon this lucrative trade. Now before we go on, um, just a point about the South. For a long time, generations in fact, Southerners had regretted the introduction of black slavery into their region. Howe notes that Southerners feared freeing the slaves might lead to a race war in addition to the economic fear that was caused by the possible loss of this lucrative system. In the end, even Southern statesmen, such as Jefferson, who had expressed a desire to end slavery, ended up defending the institution and creating ridiculous arguments, such as one which postulated that the extension of slavery would actually lead to the end of slavery. What was really going on was that the South would not tolerate Northern interference with the institution in any way. If slavery were going to end, 
it would be at the hands of the South, or it was going to be through violence. Now, the opponents of slavery's extension organized anti-slavery demonstrations in the North. Although it was difficult to mobilize popular sentiment against slavery, while most people were suffering from the Panic of 1819. Rufus King, an old Federalist and an opponent of the Three-Fifths Clause during the Constitutional Convention, was now politically allied with the African-American voters in Manhattan. He was accused of Republicans of fanning um, the flames of northern sectionalism in an attempt to revive the Federalist Party, on at least on a national level. Now, in the meantime, the Republican leadership saw the amendment as a challenge to their power, and a revolt by northern outsiders attempting to split the party. Into this scenario steps Henry Clay, James Monroe, and other party leaders to mediate a compromise. In June 1819, the Massachusetts legislature agreed to separate statehood um, for what had been called the District of Maine. Senate leadership um, immediately tied statehood to Maine for Maine to that of Missouri. A further concession was put forward by Jesse Thomas of Illinois. He had been voting with the pro-slavery side as he himself owned what people in his state referred to as indentured workers. He posed that slavery would be prohibited in all land from the Louisiana Purchase north of 3630 with the exception of Missouri. Now in the end, 18 of the northern representatives voted for um, Missouri without any restrictions on slavery or else they abstained, just enough for it to pass, thanks to the support of a solid South. So to make a long story short, basically the South is going to get what they want. Missouri entered as a slave state. The North wins the concession that slavery would now be barred from the remaining territories north of the 3630 line. And they also got Maine admitted as a state. So the North um, also has the advantage in that Spanish territory in the Southwest is acting at this point as a detriment to significant southern expansion westward, and southerners themselves were not too concerned about the lands north of 3630, as the climate there was not conducive to the cash crop agriculture, which required slave labor. Now, the legacy of the compromise was that it was going to last 34 years, and it would preserve the Union until the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. From this point forward, slavery becomes a dominant issue in American politics and a setback to national unity. Um, Another point is that the South begins to develop sectional nationalism of its own, very similar to what happened in New England during the presidency of Thomas Jefferson. And last, Henry Clay would later be criticized by Northerners as a Southern appeaser. Okay, so this was a little bit of a short episode. Um, Just wanted to make sure that you understood the Missouri Compromise. Hopefully um, that gives you a good look at it. Um, Tomorrow's episode is going to be a doozy, so I hope you're ready for that one. Again, um, thank you for listening, and have a good day.